This is Poetry. This is Life Distilled. I'm Jane. This episode, I'm going to take a look at the life and poetry of John Keats, considered by many to be the best and most beloved English poet of any era. Keats lived a short life, dying at the age of only 25, and his poetry reflects a life full of ups and downs. As a child at school, Keats was said to read voraciously, paying particular attention to Greek and Roman mythology. He translated the Aeneid, a Latin epic poem composed by Virgil, read Ovid's Metamorphosis, and even studied Milton's Paradise Lost. Despite a relatively stable and happy childhood, both Keats's parents died by the time he was 13, and afterwards he developed an even closer bond with his younger siblings. Throughout the rest of his life, Keats would face an odd sort of status quo, balancing harsh critiques with deep friendships, the death of his youngest brother with artistic breakthroughs, and eventually the decline in his own health with the publishing of his most acclaimed volumes. His poems reflected all of this by pitting beauty against realism and practicality against fantasy. What he left behind is an incredibly nuanced body of work, showcasing the relationship of beauty and suffering in human existence. To look into John Keats's inspirations, I spoke to a scholar of ancient Roman and Greek life, Abigail Pereira, who also happens to be my sister. All right, let's talk about Keats. All right. Do you know any specific poems? Um, I know there's one um, that you you probably haven't read, knowing you, but um, took a lot of inspiration from Greek myth, specifically with Endymion. If that's how you pronounce mm-hmm. it. Endymion. Endymion. Okay. At least that's how I pronounce it. But we really can't know how the Greeks would have pronounced their own names. So it doesn't matter. Okay. But yes, no, I am familiar with that poem. Mm-hmm. Did you know it's 4,000 lines long? No, but I mean, about a Greek person obsessed with Greek tradition, I'm not that surprised that it's a very long poem. Yeah, he actually set out with the intention of writing a poem that was 4,000 lines long. And he hit 4,050 it's it's pretty ambitious. Yeah. I really know a lot about um, Adonais because that's a lot of what I, I looked at. Not that particular one, but like poems on death. For your thesis, right. Yeah. And like that one's not written by him. That's technically Shelley's thing, but like it's really clearly not. And also like Keats did write a lot of like poems that are like feeling about life and death and well his early life was um pretty depressing uh for a while he grew up in you know an average middle class household his parents could afford to send him to a local school but his father died of a freak corpse accident when he was pretty young and then his mother died of tuberculosis when he was, I believe it was 18. Um, but later in life, his youngest brother got tuberculosis as well. And that is also what John Keats died of at the age of 25. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not surprised that he wrote a lot about, um, about the nature of life and death. It's also kind of interesting because Keats, like a lot of his 
really early work is like translations of like the Greek epics. So like he did the Aeneid and like you can really see that in his later work and like all of his work. Just things with Homer and everything. Do you know if you can buy a copy of the Aeneid that Keats translated or is that something that just got lost? You know, I don't know if he ever actually published it. You don't think anybody found like his notebooks or anything and published them posthumously? I don't know. But it it would be an interesting thing to have. I think one of the really funny poems I've ever read like read from him is uh him looking at the Elgin marbles right after they're brought back. Right after Lord Elgin stole them. So there's a lot of like I don't know, kind of the same emotion that I think a lot of people nowadays see looking at them. They're like, look at this like such beautiful thing, but also like it's not where it's supposed to be. What do you mean? Well, the Elgin marbles are like not set up in the vista they're meant to be in. So they're in indoors initially. They're like indoors in the wrong country. There's not like the outdoor backdrop backdrop they're not associated religiously anymore even for people who if they were attached to the Parthenon they wouldn't be religiously associated because people don't worship Athena and and if they do personally they don't do it in this um culturally structured way that the Athenians would have right right so like his poem is like he can't even like describe seeing these but he also says they're like a shadow of what they were because they're in the wrong spot. They just, they've lost something. They've lost part of themselves. And he would have known that, knowing so much about uh, yeah. all the all the history there, yeah. yeah. I mean, he died in Rome. This is true, yeah. He just wanted to see it. It's like, it was a whole big, like, pilgrimage for so many people his day. One thing I noticed, um, reading the different biographies of him, is that the way he seemed to be described by like everybody who knew him he was described constantly as generous and hardworking and compassionate and pretty liberal minded um, especially since he was you know working class middle class as opposed mm-hmm. to someone like Byron who was undeniably upper class yeah i i also think it does show which Greek characters he pulls out, like like Endymion, is like just a basic old dude. Like he didn't go out and do anything. He's not one of the big heroes. He just happened to have a goddess fall in love with him because he was a good guy. So he's he's very much like a human analog for how he was viewed by like Romans and Greeks. Hmm. Um, it's also why like Endymion was used quite often on sarcophagi. They're like, here is here is the human analog. Here is the person who has died, gone to sleep, like Endymion did. Here is something that is above him in and like people in general and like otherworldliness is like reaching down. I don't know. I think is reassuring to a lot of people. But it depends on kind of how much he knew. Sometimes it's, it's it's very much like a lover, but also like kind of a mother figure. Just a little weird, but it's Greek. It's like a reassuring thing for a lot of people. This is a human. There are seasons. It's like totally a romantic thing. 
like seasons of humans and, and like life in general, which I definitely think you see real well in like Greek art that deals with that character. In fact, I believe Keats wrote a poem almost exactly describing the seasons of human life. Yeah, it's called The Human Seasons. Do you mind if I read it? Go for it. Four seasons fill the measure of the year. There are four seasons in the mind of man. He has his lusty spring when fancy clear takes in all beauty with an easy span. He has his summer when luxuriously spring's honeyed cud of youthful thought he loves to ruminate and by such dreaming nigh his nearest unto heaven. Quiet coves his soul has in its autumn, when his wings he furleth close, contented so to look on mists in idleness, to let fair things pass by unheeded as a threshold brook. He has his winter, too, of pale misfeature, or else he would forego his mortal nature. What do you think? I mean, I think it's a really interesting one, because it, it does embody a lot of those ideas. I think I feel like we've adopted it so well into modern culture. It's like, oh yeah, that's kind of a trite sentiment. Like we're all we are already knew that. But I mean this is a lot longer ago. And he's it's like writing a, much better than a lot of people are. Yeah. It's like there's a reason that it's stuck around so long. Yeah, it's like been brought into the culture, but then we forget where did we bring it from. So it's kind of interesting to like look back and hear it and be like, this is the time period when they're really bringing that up. And maybe he's not the first one to ever, you know, have that sentiment, but he is certainly one of the ones who wrote it very beautifully in a way that other people understood it. And it's pretty sad, you know, the poem it itself. Is, it is kind of, um, but there's a sense of hopefulness to it, I think as well. Because, you know, if we didn't die, we wouldn't be human. And mm-hmm. that's, that's what makes us who we are. That's why we live our lives the way we do. Because we only have, you know, a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I do see that. I think there's a little bit of it where people nowadays focus on, like, summer and, like, youth. And they're like, oh, these dumb teenagers going out, being reckless. You know, you're an old man. You gotta look back on them now. You know, did I do any better, or am I just old and sad? I think it's interesting um, this idea about humanity. I pulled up Hyperion just to take a look at it again, a part of Book One, an excerpt, and like he makes all these comparisons, and like he's talking about so many different like gods and goddesses and like mythical figures, but also like the person that he's focusing on is dead. Well, at least in the first book. How so? So so book one opens up and it, they set up the, the time period and everything. He's describing this like lush area and, and this outdoors and it's beautiful, but there's no life as on a summer's day. Uh, there's the, the fallen divinity. The second stance is all about the body where they're dead. And it's kind of half of it's a call of like, gods, where are you? Like, who's paying attention? Who's watching this? It's beautiful, but we're sad. And we're sad because it's beautiful. Did you know that Keats was a licensed surgeon? I didn't. Yeah, he uh, went through, 
essentially what was medical school at the time. Um, he wasn't a doctor as such. The the connotations of surgeon at the time were more like what you would go to like prompt care or urgent care for, um, wound mm-hmm. dressings, vaccinations, things like that. But he did have a pretty intimate knowledge of the human body and how it works. I suppose as part of that, for the time period, they also would have had to deal with a lot of like Greek philosophy because all the Greek written books about like anatomy and physiology, everything, Galen and, you know, all the big philosophers, like they all had thoughts about like, is the soul part of the body and like what really makes up the mind versus the body all these really interesting things mm-hmm. like from what he writes totally makes sense that he'd have learned those things and they would have mostly come up talking about like physicians and stuff i do know that he also wrote um a chunk of hyperion around the time when his youngest brother tom um was dying of tuberculosis so that would also have influenced him a lot as well i know there's a connection between him and catullus like not just a he definitely studied him mm-hmm. i do know that but i also know that so for instance um keats is buried in rome the grave marker this is this is the written epitaph um is this grave contains all that was mortal of a young english poet who on his deathbed in the bitterness of his heart, at the malicious power of his enemies, desired these words engraved on his tombstone. Here lies one whose name was writ in water, and then the date. And, like, a lot of scholars have brought this direct connection into Catullus 70, which I don't think is where he was going, but it does also contain the phrase writ in water. Um, So Catullus, I won't bother with the Latin, but he says... um, but what a woman says as a passionate lover ought to be written as on the wind and the running water. Specifically, I mean, Catullus, all his poems are like, a lot of his poems involve invective, and that's one of them. But also this idea of like ephemerality is like really common in Catullus and like going further back to people that Catullus like wrote with and was inspired by. Um, for instance, Sappho, like she's got a lot of poets, like poems that are like human, we're gonna die, but also like a lot of these thoughts of who will remember us. So especially the fact that he writes that sort of phrase on his tombstone, I am going to die, but who will remember me? And also how will they remember me? And it turns out he's, you know, generally thought of as one of the absolute greatest English poets in history, despite having such a short career and only having lived till 25. Um, a real short part of a letter that he, he wrote to a friend that's like, he didn't believe he'd left any like major work behind him to make his like friends proud, but that he loved the principle of beauty in all things. And like he wanted that idea to pass forward. Yeah, he was very much inspired by Wordsworth when Wordsworth first started publishing. That idea of the ultimate beauty in nature and how we can reflect that in ourselves through the love of good things and how that will make us good. Mm-hmm. 
And, like, I think that does show up in, like, poems, just where he's, like, even when he's talking about people, he always spends some time, like, really building up a scene, like a backdrop, and it's almost always outdoors, somewhere full of nature, somewhere that, like, the, the setting itself lends a great deal to maybe why that emotion is in that poem, or to reflect the emotion in the poem, that you could feel it just by being there. And I do think that is beautiful. Do you know any um, specific parts or anything that you'd want to read? Let's. I'll. I'll read that. Um, the Elgin Marbles one because I personally, that's one I'm quite familiar with. All right. Whenever you want to go ahead. On seeing the El- Elgin Marbles by John Keats. My spirit is too weak. Mortality weighs heavily on me, like unwilling fruit. And each imagined pinnacle and steep of godlike hardship tells me I must die, like a sick eagle looking at the sky. Yet tis a gentle luxury to weep, that I have not the cloudy winds to keep fresh for the opening of the morning's eye. Such dim conceived glories of the brain bring round the heart of an undescribable feud. So do these wonders a most dizzy pain that mingles Grecian grandeur with the rude wasting of old time. With a billowy mane, a sun, a shadow of a magnitude. Because he's looking at these things and being like, I'm not seeing them in the time period. He's like looking at them, he's being like, an artist made these so long ago and they're like so hard to comprehend, like the age and the size and where they first went up and like the sort of pride that you would have had seeing that and like the inherent connection it has to those people's like gods because it, it is depicting them but also it's on the temple to them it's some of the most important events and it's after they just won the, the Athenians have just won this great victory that they also attributed to the gods because the people they were fighting the Persians are like they came in and they burnt the temple to the ground and they've re-put this up and now he's looking at these like great works of art and they're not where they should be so he's like the time that's gone by and the place that's changed I don't know I think it was very personal a sense of bittersweetness maybe yeah very much that I feel like a lot of his poems feel bittersweet and it's probably an emotion he was familiar with Probably. Urine poem is weird, too. So I think he feels like he's looking at some sort of pottery. It's definitely got people and probably a bunch of satyrs because they, they talks a lot about music and a lover that cannot kiss and this woman who cannot ever fade and they'll love forever, but they'll never actually make it because they're drawn in the moment of reaching out but not connecting here's the the final line when old age shall this generation waste thou shalt remain in midst of other woe than ours a friend to man to whom thou sayest beauty is truth truth beauty that is all ye on earth and all you need to know very much uh, indicative of most of what keats wrote I just, having also looked at all these sorts of 
Greek pots and museums and things looked at them and been like, you can't even tell who the artist is half the time. Like, you don't know who owned it. You don't necessarily know what they used it for, how they felt when it was commissioned, or if they just found it at a market stall and were like, that's really beautiful and I need it. The beauty is the only thing that you can, you know, really connect with for sure in these days. Yeah, this pot and say, I think that's also beautiful. And it is like, it connects you to, you know, any number of people so long ago that are like, I like this pot well enough to buy it or commission it and like use it. And I think something about this image like will last. So it's kind of nice to have somebody in the middle between me and it also looking back thinking the same thing. All right, I think we'll, uh, we'll close it there. Thanks very much for giving me, you know, a half hour to do this. No, thanks for asking me. That was Abigail Pereiro, scholar on Greek and Roman art. Join me next episode as we explore another poet. And if you've got a favorite poem you'd like to have us read, check out the Life Distilled Twitter and Instagram, at Poetry Distilled. This is Jane wishing you happy reading. <laughs>